Welcome to the Dublin Festival of History podcast, brought to you by Dublin City Council. In this episode from the 2019 festival, historian Tom Holland makes his third appearance at the festival to talk about his book, Dominion, How Christianity Shaped the Western Mind. The moderator is Erasmus Smith's Professor of Modern History at Trinity College, Professor Jane Olmeyer. And the episode was recorded at Printworks, Dublin Castle, on the 19th of October 2019. Good evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen. It's so lovely to be, especially look at that packed house. Fantastic. Uh, my name's Jane Olmeyer, and it's my privilege to be in conversation tonight uh, with uh, Tom Holland. And before I say a few more words uh, by way of introduction, I do want to congratulate everybody involved uh, with the Dublin uh, Festival of History. It's the sixth year that I've been uh, uh, involved in a very always in a very uh, modest way, but I've been so impressed with how it's just gone from strength to strength to strength. And I really think uh, uh, Bert, uh, Brendan, Tara, the whole team, and Dublin City Council, because it's fantastic these events are free. So just before we even say anything else, well done, everybody. Fantastic. So Tom, as Bert's already said, is well known. It's his third appearance at the Dublin Festival of History. And um, I'm going to say a few words about three aspects of uh, uh, what I admire most about uh, Tom Holland. Obviously, he's a hugely uh, distinguished uh, historian uh, and, uh, and writer. And, you know, he read history uh, at Cambridge and he's gone on. And I was just counting all of his books. Rubicon in 2003, Persian Fire 2005, Millennium in 2008, In the Shadow uh, of the Sword in 2012. And I believe in 2013, you were here talking about that, yeah. Tom. Uh, uh, Dynasty, Rise and Fall of the House of Caesar 2015. You know, this is a phenomenal uh, output. And in addition to being uh, just the most wonderfully erudite writer, he's very much a broadcaster uh, himself. Uh, he's got Radio 4 Making History. Uh, he has been very involved with two wonderful uh, documentaries, The Origins of Islam and another on uh, ISIS. And he might say a few words uh, uh, about those at some point. Uh, the third thing that I admire hugely uh, is how active he is as a conservationist, but also as a public intellectual and as an advocate. Um, he's been very involved in setting up a think tank on these islands. Uh, and given the day that's in it, uh, uh, obviously Brexit is on all... I'm not going to mention the rugby, but we may say a few words about, about Brexit. Can't bear to mention the rugby. Um, uh, but, but Tom has been trying to uh, uh, lead uh, very constructive conversations about basically uh, uh, the future of these islands. And I'm very keen at some point, Tom, to come back uh, to say a few words about that. But really, it's his wonderful book, Dominium, that we're here to talk about tonight. Can you raise your hand if you've actually read it? Just to give us a sense of, a oh, so you're going to have a really busy time signing copies. <laughs> so many people to persuade. <laughs> because it's an absolutely cracking read. You really won't be able to put it down. Uh, and the format for this evening is basically Tom will probably speak for about 10 minutes and actually tell you 
a little bit about the book. Now, it's extraordinarily hard for me to summarize it because it's just so extraordinarily wide ranging uh, in terms of the chronological breadth, the geographic breadth, but also just the way he has conceptualized it. So, I think probably the best way to start is for Tom to take that 10 minutes to tell us what Dominion is about. And then he and I will have a conversation for about half an hour. And then we'll have an opportunity for you to ask uh, some questions. So without further ado, Tom, tell us a little bit about Dominion. Well, the, 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 the subtitle that was um, essentially foisted on me by um, my British editor is The Making of the Western Mind which it wasn't my choice at all. The, the American editor has gone for the one that I prefer, which is how the Christian revolution transformed the world, um, which tells you quite a lot, I think, about the difference between, yeah, between British and uh, American attitudes to, to the subject of Christianity. Um, it, it, it's not a history of Christianity. It's a history of, of what I think has been um, transformative and revolutionary about Christianity. And um, essentially, it posits the idea that um, Christianity has been the most transformative way of conceptualizing um, what it is to be human in the entire span, not just of Western history, but, but, but of human history as well. And to um, essentially to, to, to make that argument, I have to go back to the world that existed before Christianity, uh, and then I have to trace its evolution over the 2,000 years that, that it's existed. So that's why um, the, there is the kind of broad sweep it, it, it has. And as I was writing it, the, um, the metaphor that, that I had was the notion that we are in the West, are, are, are goldfish, um, and the water that we swim in is essentially Christian, even today. But then after I finished it, uh, I watched um, the uh, drama series about the explosion uh, of Chernobyl. Um, I'm sure some of you will have seen that three-part series. And in that drama series, you see the reactor ruptured and you see the radioactivity leaking out. And there it is visible before you because it's ionizing the air. But of course, the impact of the radioactivity is not confined to the rupture point. The, the radioactivity spreads and people in Kiev, people in uh, Scandinavia, people in Britain, people in Ireland are going to be affected by it as well. Now, I, I'm not going kind of Richard Dawkins here. I'm not saying that Christianity makes your hair fall out and kills you. The re what I mean by this is that Clearly, Christianity has been incredibly influential. Everyone would accept that. And, and when we look at it as um, with bishops or cardinals or preachers or pastors or whatever, there it's clear that Christianity has been influential. But the argument is that, that it's also influential in ways that I think many of us, and certainly me before I, I, I got the idea of writing this book, influential in ways that, that perhaps we might not readily be aware of. Because I think that so influential has Christianity been that there is a tendency on the part of people, particularly in the West, to equate it essentially with human nature. So 
Clearly, Christianity has been influential on the way that we conceptualise what is good and evil, our, our morals and our ethics. But it's also been influential in all kinds of other ways. Um, it's been massively, it, 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 it's massively determined, for instance, I think, how most of us think about sex, uh, why we have a notion of deep time. Um, and in fact, paradoxically, why it is that um, we think that there are things called religions that in a secular society perhaps we have superseded. And I'm aware that in my lifetime, particularly here in, in Ireland, there's a feeling that we've got, you know, Ireland has gone from being a very religious society to becoming a very secular society. And yet, as a secular society, Ireland remains as shaped by the legacy of Christianity as it was when it was a very religious society. So I thought that, that, that to kind of tease out the way in which I think that, that, that Christianity has to be understood not as something static, not as something unitary, but almost like a kind of a, 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 a huge depth charge that continues to reverberate out through time and to change things as those reverberations proceed through time. Um, I just talk about this idea of religion and the secular to tease out how and why it is that these are notions that, that are not givens. These, the notion of religion, the notion of secular, is not something that every society has had. It's something that's very, very distinctive. And, and uh, you know, as I say, it's kind of part of the water in which we swim. So it's something that, that the notion of there being religion and the secular is something that goes right the way back to the beginnings of Christianity. It's, it's there kind of uh, waiting to be born in, in um, the story of, of, of people coming to Jesus and trying to trick him by asking whether Jews should pay taxes to Caesar. And G Jesus famously asks for a coin and says, whose head is is on the coin and the answer comes Caesar's and so he says render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and render unto God what is God's and that enshrines the idea that there is a tension between Caesar and God between the city of man and the city of God um, but this is this is a, a an idea that kind of gets entrenched within theological soil Ironically, by the fact that Rome ends up becoming Christian. The reason for this is that for the Romans, and particularly for the emperors, what they want is a kind of insurance policy. That's, that's, that's what they look for from the heavens. You establish a religio, a bond with the gods. And a religio can be a, a priesthood or a sacrifice or a festival, something that shows your respect for the gods. And in return for that, it's like kind of paying a premium on an insurance policy. The gods will look after you. When the Roman, become, when the Roman Empire becomes Christian, it's, there is just the one religio because there is just the one God. And it's very important to establish what the proper religio is. But when Rome in 410 then gets sacked, there are, of course, all kinds of people who haven't bought into this Christianization of the emperor who say this is because you know, we should never have ripped up our old insurance policy. We should have continued to pay the premiums to the old gods. And now look what's happened. But the 
probably the most titanic figure in the history of, of Latin theology, Augustine, a bishop from North Africa, has a radical answer to this. He says, no, there, um, Rome essentially is nothing. Rome is a part of, of, of the city of man. And Augustine says it's, it's, the reason for this is that it belongs to the dimension of what he calls the cyclum. And the cyclum is basically the span of living human memory. So it's the flux of things. And he says that all, everything human is born on the flux of things. Not just individual human lives, but even something as great and seemingly enduring as Rome. It will collapse. It will be swept away. And of course, against that can be counterpointed the radiant eternity of the city of God. And the religio that is established between fallen humanity and that radiant eternity, that is what gives humans the chance to live forever, to escape the cyclum. And the church is, is, is the guardian of this religio. And over the course of the centuries, this division, this sense of there being a dimension of the cyclum and then this kind of radiant dimension of eternity, which the church provides um, the entry to, becomes very deeply embedded in the fabric of, of the, the, the barbarian kingdoms that emerged from the rubble of, of what had been the empire in the West. And by the 11th century, there are radicals within the church who are prepared to push it to um, revolutionary extremes. They want to see the church even more impregnably um, secured against the kind of grubby fingerprints of the cyclum, cycularia, secular things, you might say, than it had previously been. And among their targets are emperors and kings. Because in, in Western Europe, as across the whole span of Eurasia, all the way to Japan, every society has taken for granted that if you have earthly power, then you also have a stake in the supernatural. This is the assumption that um, reformers in, in the Western church in the 11th century set on its head. They say that kings and emperors should not have a say, for instance, in appointing bishops. And to push this idea through, these radicals seize control of the commanding heights of um, the most powerful institution in the West, which is the Bishopric of Rome. And they establish this revolutionary idea that the church essentially has a kind of sovereignty that stands distinct from earthly realms. And they humiliate kings and emperors in the cause of doing this. They, uh, they summon up warriors to defend them, some of whom go as far afield as Jerusalem. They uh, establish novel institutions called universities, which provide cadres of, uh, of, of lawyers and clerics who construct entire new frameworks of law. And over the course of the centuries that follow, this embeds even further the idea that there is this secular dimension and there is the dimension of, of, of religio. And the people who, who have responsibility above all for religio are those who devote their lives to it, the monks, the nuns, the hermits, the friars, and so on. But over the course of the centuries, this great impulse starts to calcify. And one of the ways in which the... Um, the, the, the popes in the 11th century and their successors had been able to humble earthly kings was that they had made themselves agents of this idea that 
as said by Christ, the first will be last and the last will be first. But in time, they have come to be the new elite. They are now the first. And so this generates, you know, as sure as a kind of physical chain reaction, this generates a determination on the part of, um, of, of certain Christians to overturn what seems to have become a, a new hierarchy. In the 11th century, the process of revolution had been given it. The, the, the Latin word was reformatio. In the 16th century, a new spasm of reformatio is born, the, the spasm that we call the reformation. But it's not something radically new. It's a recalibration of the, uh, of the reformatio that had happened in, in the 11th century. But the effect is that it um, democratizes the idea of religio. Everyone now has a religio. What is your religio? It's your personal relationship with God. You know, it's not confined to monks and nuns. Every individual Protestant has it. And so in, particularly in, in, uh, in, in, in Britain, in the Netherlands, in, um, in, in the Lutheran lands, a new, version, a, a new idea of religio, kind of anglicized in the case of Britain, kicks in. And religion is, comes to be something that is private, something that is personal. But at the same time, as the notion of, of the seculum is anglicized to become the secular, so it, a, 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 a parallel understanding of religion also beds in. The idea that religion is something that can be set aside from the secular and therefore you know, you can be defined by the religion you belong to. Maybe you're a Catholic, maybe you're a Protestant, maybe you're uh, a Lutheran or an Anglican or a Quaker or whatever. And so over the course of 17th into the 18th century, the idea beds down that there is a space called the secular. And over the course of the 18th century, this expands and widens. And what, what is called religion comes to shrink and shrink, comes to, in a sense, be ghettoized. And when you have um, a, a fresh spasm of reformatio, what we call the Enlightenment, the French Revolution, we still live with, with, with its after effects, this again recalibrates the understanding of what the secular and what the religious is. So that we arrive at the, the state we have today where, ironically, the revolution that was set in train by popes in the 11th century to preserve the integrity of the church has now essentially ended up with religion being so shunted into the mm. margins that essentially secularism, the idea of secularism, has, has become something that has seized the reins that the popes once mm. wielded. And this is a kind of example of the paradoxes, the kind of Moebius strips that seems to characterise Christian history right the way through. Mm. That, that there's a kind of... Um, a, a kind of paradox generator right at the heart of it. And I suppose when you think about the, you know, the, the, the idea of, of, of the crucifixion and the resurrection, which lies at the heart of it, of, of a, a, a man who is God, a God who is human, uh, somebody who dies, who rises, um, a, a symbol of imperial power becoming a symbol of its conquest, you realise that actually... Christianity, among other things, has been the most effective weaponization of paradox that, that, that humanity has ever devised mm. as well. And we continue to live with the aftershocks of that mm. to this day. And that's a deliciously provocative 
obviously interpretation as well. Um, and, and what you've just done there, Tom, is given us this phenomenal synthesis of a, a narrative that begins in, what, 480 BC and goes right through to the Me Too movement in the you know, 21st century. Um, there are so many characters that could have appeared in that story. Obviously, there's a few that have to be there. Um, but, but I was very struck by how you build your narrative around... It's very personalised. But also the geographic breadth. You're taking us from North Africa to Skellig Michael, sort of from Bangor to Bobbio. Um, how, as you were thinking about this book, did you construct that in your head about you know, what to include and... A, what to exclude as well, because it's at 500 pages as it is. I can imagine, yeah. you know, you could well, have said a lot more. But, <laughs> yes. But, but equally, you know, it, it, you don't want it to, it, you know, it's, it's long as it is. Well, the, 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 the challenge with a book like this is not what you, you put in, but what you leave out. Exactly. I mean, what, what takes time is to write something short rather than long. Absolutely. Um, and... So, so I knew that um, I, I didn't want to do what Dermot McCulloch had done so brilliantly, which was to give a kind of panoramic history that covered everything. I knew that I, I, I couldn't do that. So I, um, I, I kind of reached for Christian symbolic numerology, mm. which came to my rescue. And I thought, well, the two, uh, you know, the, the number three is obviously, you know, the Trinity is obviously a, a key Christian number. And then the seven, the seven sacraments, the seven deadly sins, the seven churches in the book of Revelation. So, so I'll go with that as well. So the book is divided into three parts, mm. um, antiquity, Christendom, and modernitas. Mm. Then it's divided into seven chapters, each chapter is then divided into three parts, so I hope you've got that. <laughs> um, so that's 21 chapters in all. Each chapter has a, a single word um, uh, heading. So the, the, the first one is Athens, and the very last one is Woke. Yeah. And um, it, it, each chapter opens with a kind of vignette, uh, a, a, yeah. a, a, a moment of drama in a particular place, a particular point of time, that I hope um, kind of sheds a light on the theme of the, 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 the chapter that I'm then going to explore. So um, that was how I decided that I would structure it. And the fun then was to try and decide what, what the 21 chapter headings were going to be, but also what the episodes were going to be that were going to illustrate each one. And as you say, I want, sometimes I go for, for obvious ones. So I've got Pompey the Great um, storming um, Jerusalem, in 63 BC, and the title of that chapter is Jerusalem, and that's about what Christians would call the Old Testament. It's about the, the, the Jewish heritage that will influence Christianity. I've got, um, for, for, for Reformation, I've got Martin Luther burning the, uh, the papal bull of excommunication in Wittenberg. But I've, I've tried to do uh, some, some less obvious ones as well, uh, of which I think my favourite, which I, I kind of came to almost by accident. I'd never heard of it before. I, I wanted to write a, a chapter called Flesh, <laughs> um, which was going to be about Christian attitudes to sex and about relationship between, the, um, between male and female. Uh, and it was going to be in the 14th century. I knew that I was going to have um, Catherine of Siena. I knew mm. I was going to have uh, talk about um, 
anxieties about sodomy in Siena and, 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 um, and Venice in the 14th century. But I didn't know what I was going to open with. And then I came across this throwaway line in a book about medieval heresy um, about a, 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 an abbess who had been burnt for believing that she was going to become the Pope. Mm. And I went, wow, <laughs> I'd never heard of that. And it's this extraordinary story about um, the abbess is, is, is a, a, a cousin of the... Um, the, the, the tyrant of, of Milan at the time, um, who believed that an enigmatic aristocrat princess uh, of, of kind of either from Bohemia or from, from England, a kind of enigmatic foreigner uh, called Guglielma, who this abbess came to believe had been the Holy Spirit mm. um, and that she had come just as Christ had come to usher in the age of the sun. So Guglielma, the spirit had come to usher in the age of the spirit that was going to dawn. And she had died, but was believed to have gone up to heaven by, by her, 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 her followers, all of whom were convinced that um, the Pope was going to become female, the cardinals were going to become mm. female. And obviously this went down with the Inquisition like a cup of cold sick. <laughs> so we, we, yeah. <laughs> yes. And so we open with the, the reaction of the, <laughs> the Inquisition yeah. to this. Yeah. Um, but I think that works so well in drawing the reader in. And as I say, it, you know, those vignettes, those anecdotes are very powerful. I was also very struck by the end, which is very personal. So uh, Tom ends by talking about uh, his own relationship with Christianity, the death, uh, the, the death of his godmother. Um, yeah. uh, you call her Auntie Debs. I, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But your love of paleontology, but also of your uh, visit to Sinjar in Iraq and the site of the uh, Yazidi uh, atrocities and, and massacres. So it ends on this intensely personal note. Would you like to just share why you decided to end the book that way? Because again, it's a, it's a very powerful ending. Well, uh, since, since the entire argument of the book is, is basically that, 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 that one is influenced by this history, even if one doesn't realise it, even if one kicks against that realisation, obviously then I, I also am a part of that story. And the very fact that I wanted to write this book then becomes part of that story. And so I try to be as objective as I absolutely can mm. um, in terms of chronicling... Um, you know, the, the virtues and, and the sins of Christianity as they've manifested themselves over the centuries. But obviously my sense of what a virtue and a sin is in itself determined by Christianity. In other words, I can't myself stand outside this. I can't pretend to a kind of omniscience. I'm part of the story as well. So I thought that, that, that I had to include myself in that way. And one of the things that when you... You know, I mean, you'll know that, that, that the temptation when you write history is always to, um, is to dwell on the big names, the people who are a part of the history book, and the, and the thinkers and the theologians and the philosophers. But, but, but when I look back at my own life, it seemed manifest to me that um, one of the ways, in probably the most significant way in which um, Christian teachings, Christian assumptions have spread is in the way that children are brought up, generally by their mother or by, um, in my, you know, my, my mother was a huge influence on me, but also by my godmother. And, and these are the kind of people who, who don't tend to feature in history books, mm. but their influence is, you know, I mean, it, it, it is, is profound. So that's why I wanted to talk about my godmother. Um, and then I wanted to talk about uh, 
you know, the process by which I was raised in, in, I was raised in Anglican, my mother and godmother kind of provided me with moral lodestars, uh, how and why it was that I came to lose my faith in, 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 in God, which was essentially the fault of dinosaurs. So I talk a little <laughs> bit about dinosaurs in that. But then a, a kind, I think, it is, I think it would be fair to say that it was a kind of spiritual experience. Mm. It was an experience that defied rationality, which is, mm. when, as you say, I, I went to um, the front line with ISIS as it existed in whenever it was, 2016 or 15, I can't remember. Um, and we went to Sinjar, which was a, 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 a town um, that had been conquered by um, ISIS in the summer of 2014. And the, a lot of Yazidis were living there and lots of them were captured. And the women, the, the ones that were uh, considered attractive enough to be enslaved, were duly enslaved. Those who, who didn't pass muster were killed and the men were killed and some of the men were, were crucified. And we arrived in this town a few weeks after it had been recaptured by the, the Kurds. Um, but ISIS were kind of camped, you know, a couple of miles away across flatlands, so absolutely within striking distance. And I, I, I'm not a naturally brave person, a bit like with Nell and I going on holiday by mistake. I'd gone to the front line with ISIS by mistake. I'd never kind of, you know, if I'd thought that I was going to end up there, I'd never have gone. But we, we kind of ended up there. Uh, and to be in a... Um, a, a town where crucifixion had been practiced as the Romans had practiced it. So by people for whom the cross had none of the symbolic resonance that I think it has for everyone raised in a Western society, whether you are believing Christian or not, if, you, you know, if you're injured and you see something coming towards you with a red cross on it, you know it's good news. You know that this is somebody coming to help you. And... I think one of the effects of that is that we've been desensitized to what the cross actually you know, originally meant. But being in Sinjar brought it back for me very, very powerfully that the cross existed to instill dread in those who were subject to Rome. And that's why ISIS were, were, were doing this. It was designed to make you feel absolute terror because the cross... To be crucified was the worst fate the Romans could imagine. Um, you know, you could be thrown to the lions, you could be burnt to death, you could be sent to the mines, whatever. But to be crucified was the worst thing because, you know, there was no one way of doing it. it people who crucified, you know, it was up to your creativity. You might put, hang them upside down, you might impale them while you were doing it, you might drive nails through their bones so that you, every time, uh, you know, you keep yourself alive if you hanging from a cross, you have to lift yourself up. So every time you lift yourself up, the, 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 the metal of the nail is rubbing against the bone. You can't stop the birds from flocking around your head, pecking out your eyes. You're naked. Your suffering, your agony is public for the hours, the days that you're alive. And the humiliation fuses with the physical agony to make this something that the, the Romans simultaneously wanted to be a public display while finding it so disgusting that they couldn't really bring themselves mm. to, to, to talk about it. Mm. And going to Sinjar brought this 
very powerfully to me, and I felt the idea of, of, of the cross not having the signification that it has for Christians, the idea that this is a symbol of the conquest of humiliation, symbol of the idea that life and, and hope and victory can come from what seems to be its opposite. I felt it as a kind of blasphemy, mm. deep, you know, in a way that, that far transcended any sense of, of, of objectivity mm. or, or rationality. Um, and I think that that was counted as a kind of uh, religious experience, perhaps. Mm. And so that's, um, that's the, no, the, no, the very notion which I ended. I begin yeah. it with the cross and I end it with the cross. Yeah. And as I say, it comes across very powerfully. Um, in terms of how long did it take you to write the book? Ooh, um I say this well, as a historian. Well, I should think about four years. <laughs> really? Cause, a, a, you know, about four a, years. But, it, but it's a book that I couldn't have written if I hadn't ri- written all the previous books. Yeah. And in a way, it's, it's a kind of apologia for um, particularly the books I wrote on... Um, the, the first book I wrote was about the age of Julius Caesar. Yeah. The second book I wrote is about the Persian Wars. So that, that, that includes Leonidas and the Spartans at Thermopylae. And I wanted to write about them because as a child, I'd completely identified with them. I'd yeah. found you know, their heroism, their glory, their, their glamour incredibly appealing. But I found the process of, um, you know, and the, and the argument of, of Rubicon, which I was writing um, against the backdrop of 9-11 and the build-up mm-hmm. to the Iraq war, was in many ways that, had, you know, the parallels between the American and the Roman republics. And yeah. that's what I was playing with. Yeah. But... The, the, the process of writing those two books, of trying to see the eyes through Julius Caesar, through Leonidas, kind of brought home to me that actually I was, you know, we're nothing like them. Mm. They're incredibly alien and, and, and frightening, really. And so that's, that's what underlies a lot of, 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 of why I wanted to write the book, was, was a, a, a sense that... The classical world is is not as I tended to argue when I did events like this for publicising Rubicon or Persian mm. Fire. Oh, they're just like us. Actually, it's the kind of sense they're nothing like us at all. Mm. And the book is an attempt to explain how and why they're yeah. nothing like us. No, no, and you do that very successfully. Looking to the future, tell us about your next projects, including the children's book that I know that you're working on. Well, the children's book is basically, it's, it's, um, it's uh, Persian Fire for Children. It's going to be one of So yeah. it's, um, it's uh, there's Wonderful. lots of books, uh, children's books on, on Greek mythology, but I want to do one on, on Greek history because I had one that I got out of um, the local library where I was a child, which, which, which was hugely influential on me. It was one of my yeah. favourite books and I've, I've ne- I can't actually remember who wrote it, so I haven't been able to track <laughs> it down. Probably good, so I've got to write one for my own. But I, I would like to write a book that, that, you know, and if it then has an impact um, on... On, on, on readers that analogous to the impact that this book had on me, then I will feel that, that, that you know, that's a job worth doing. Yeah. And, and, and for the big children? What's the big coming? children, well, I, I, I'm, um, I'm doing a translation of Suetonius's Lives of the Caesars um, for Penguin Classics, which will replace the translation by Robert Graves, as in I, Claudius. Yeah, and it wonderful. was purely the bragging rights of, <laughs> of being able to, to say that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and of course, um, Dominion is such a vast topic that there's a kind of pleasure in having, you know, I know exactly what it is that I've got to write. Sure. And of course, it's, I, I, I started to think, it, I had a kind of memory in my head that it was all just wall-to-wall filth. <laughs> I, I, and I have to say that um, having just spent two weeks writing about Augustus's law reforms and his approach to equestrian status and stuff, <laughs> 
get to the filth? <laughs> and I turn the page and there's yet more about <laughs> Augustan reforms of the... Oh, no. But I know the filth is coming. Oh. Kind of like, like, like a kind of distant mountain peak that slowly I, I have Caligula looming on the horizon. Well. <laughs> Which has one of my favourite lines in, in any biography ever written where Suetonius says... Um, but enough of the man, now for the monster. <laughs> so I hope to get to that in time for Christmas. Yeah. Well, I've one last question for you before we throw it uh, over to the audience. And it's really the role of uh, history in a civil society. So there was a big debate here in Ireland about history on, in our curriculum. And at one point it was going to be taken off the junior cycle. Now that, thank goodness, has changed but largely because of the public outcry, especially from our president, uh, uh, Michael uh, D. Higgins. But it's the role of history in, and the importance of history uh, in a, a, a democratic uh, uh, civic society. Can you reflect a little bit on that and why it's so important that we have events like this, that we have documentaries like you've been making, radio programmes, obviously we've got them here in Ireland, and, you know, the fundamental importance of doing that, because I'm assuming you believe it is fundamentally important. I, th I mean, I think that um, when, the, uh, when the Berlin Wall came down, uh, you know, end of history, uh, I was kind of feeling that... that Essentially, we, we, we'd arrived at, a, at an end point, um, and history essentially was, was, was heritage. Hope you and know. history rhymed yeah. in the words of uh, yes. Seamus Heaney. So in the context of, of, um, of, of, of Anglo-Irish relations, yeah. um, there was kind of hope that with the Good Friday Agreement, you know, history had come to an end. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, the only time that the Irish would have to worry about the English was, um, you know, stag parties coming to Temple Bar. Rugby matches. Yeah, yeah and, 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 <laughs> and obviously when you get thrashed in the Rugby World Cup and, and England doesn't. Um, but of course, um, you know, history is a nightmare from, from which we're all trying to wake yeah. up. And um, it's... it's, and it's, it's um, it, it's come back, and the, and the the truth is, is that that unless it's not that you, it's not that there are right answers to history. Mm. I mean, it's, it's kind of pat way of saying if you don't know your history, then you're you know you're doomed to repeat it, or you won't understand. I, I, I mean, the truth is that it's the it's the realization that that, that there are no right answers in history. Mm. There are simply arguments about mm. history, um, and you know. From the Anglo-Irish point of view, we entirely know that. That, I mean, I would I would say that um, that the Brexit debate actually do, was was is is please. really an an argument about different understandings of of British history. Mm. Um, and part of the problem, the reason that 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 it's become so. Um, kind of visceral and entrenched is that the, the risk is, is that both sides end up thinking that, that their, their, their perspective on, 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 on British history is true and that the other one is ridiculous. The, the, the truth is, is that it's, it, it, it's, a, it's a clash between two entirely reasonable points of view, yeah. two entirely reasonable perspectives on British history. And... The problem for Ireland, as ever, is is is, is that the is that Ireland gets caught up in the wake of these kind of 
deeply conflicted arguments about what British, how British history is to be understood on the part of, 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 of the English uh, and the Scots and the Welsh and the Ulster Unionists and everyone else. <laughs> um, so just phrasing it like that, you immediately start seeing how, you know, I mean, you know, you know the, the, it, it's not that there is a right or wrong answer. And so if you, yeah. if you, if you can't make your mind up about it, if you, you know, if you, essentially you, you need history so that you can decide which of these arguments right. you, you want to back. Yeah. And without that, then you're, you're just floundering. Yeah. And I think actually it was the Brexit discussions actually convinced the government of the importance of including history in our curriculum. It actually was that, you know, the current debate that we didn't, we didn't know our history and, and the importance of putting it there. You have the old aphorism, of course, is the uh, uh, Irish never forget and the English never remember. But uh, uh, it, I, I'm, well, it, maybe it's a good moment to, to, to throw it open to the floor. And if we have any uh, questions, there's somebody just beside you here. Maybe we'll take our first question. Please go ahead, sir. Hello. Thank you very much for a wonderful lecture. I'd just like to go back to your previous book, In the Shadow of the Sword, which has the most amazing opening that I have ever read in my life, and I'd like to thank you for that. In that book, you suggested that much of the life of Muhammad the prophet was made up about three or 400 years after the events which they described. And I think you used the phrase, a yawning chasm between the events of Muhammad's life and the beginnings of the recording of that life. You're a very brave man, I also say. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Do you want to respond to that, actually? Because uh, uh, obviously you did uh, well, it, uh, receive uh, death threats. Um, yeah. it, I, I, it's not quite as extreme as that. There are, there, there are mentions of Muhammad. I mean, in fact, there's a contemporary mention of Muhammad, it seems, which constitutes one of the mm. opening sections in this book. Um, but yes, essentially, um, the, the, the life of Muhammad as gets put down in, in, in biographies of him about 200 years after, after his lifetime is, un, I think, unlikely to, to, to be history. But uh, w there were many Muslims who, who, who said to me, um, you know, what about you? What about the, the, the things that you hold dear? Would you do the same? You know, would you put your beliefs under the microscope. And to be honest, the, the, the experience of talking about In the Shadow of the Sword, may, you know, I was, again, I was not being neutral there. I was coming from the perspective, for instance, of, 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 of a non-Muslim. And I was also coming from the perspective of, of someone who, who didn't believe in God and didn't think that, that the divine intervened to, 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 to reorder human affairs. And that is as... Um, you know, that's, that's not a neutral or, or objective stance. It's a reflection of, of the kind of processes of history that have resulted in, in, in the position that I occupy. And so I thought that that was a, a really fair question. And as I was going around doing events and often speaking to Muslims, I was really thinking about, well, wh where do my presumptions, where do my prejudices, where do they come from? And so in a sense, Dominion is an attempt to do to liberal, secular, agnostic humanism what I was trying to do in The Shadow of the Sword to Islam, and it, it, it's that that led me back to, to, to realizing that actually it, 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 it's Christian. And a lot of, um, insofar as um, there's been kind of hostile kickback to the argument, it's come from liberal secular humanists who want to believe that they don't owe anything, you know, they don't owe anything to Christianity, that it all came like a virgin birth 
from the Enlightenment. <laughs> um, and they, they protest in ways that, that eerily remind me of how Muslims objected to what I was writing about in, in The Shadow of the Sword, which, which I'm pleased about because it makes me feel that, that, that I was, to that degree, being, being honest with myself in, in tracing back where my own personal views do, I think, clearly come from. Thank you. We have another question over here. Could I just ask people to be as direct and uh, uh, as but quick? But not too we direct. Well, well, I mean, direct in the sense we don't need long statements, just questions, please. So a question on the end of what you said about history shaping current discussions and narratives, and maybe that thing about self-critique. I'm thinking of the way history can do that, you know, Hamilton versus Jefferson, who identifies with which side, reconstruction in the United States. My question is, for all that liberal secularists have complained about your theory, isn't there, or your story, isn't there a sense in which it could be a great thing for them because they can say, they can adopt a new narrative. They can say, we've taken the best bits of this great revolution and we've moved forward with it and we can kind of, we can be at peace with it then. We're the heirs of Christianity. And on that note, would you say that that's a, a, a narrative they should be comfortable in? And would you say there's things about the Christian revolution that should challenge um, the heirs to the Christian revolution? That are actually say that maybe, you know, what about that, that initial revolution? You're talking about how there's an heir to it. What about that initial revolution says, okay, here's something that's actually challenging liberal secularism in a, in a real way. Thank you very much. Okay, well, yes, in one way, you'd think, um, you know, if you don't believe in God, uh, why, why, why does it matter where your beliefs come from? Uh, and I think the, 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 the way in which uh, there, is a, there is a kind of reluctance to, uh, to acknowledge it is it has a kind of slightly Oedipal quality. You know, you, you, you don't want to recognise that you have basically killed your father. I think, I think that is a, a part of it. But I think that um, it's more theological than that. Because if you... Um, I, 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 so one of the, one of the things that, 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 that marks, if you like, the transformation of Christendom into becoming the West is the ability that people in the West have to disguise what are essentially Christian concepts and market them as being culturally universal, that people of all religions can share in. And that, of course, means projecting the, the Christian idea of, of religion onto other, you know, creating concepts like Hinduism, indeed Judaism or Islam. You know, these are, are, are essentially Christian categories. Um, but it, um, uh, the, 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 the problem with that is that uh, I've completely lost train of my thought. What was I saying? <laughs> where, where, was I, where, where was I on that? Uh, yeah, yeah. So, 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 the, problem, so the, the, the problem is that um, if ideas like, for instance, secularism or human rights are recognised to be culturally contingent. So human rights particularly. I mean, human rights seem to me clearly, uh, there's a clear line of descent from um, uh, canon lawyers in the 12th century. Um, you know, this, the, the, uh, and yet people from the West principally have wanted to assume that, that these are universal ideas and therefore if they're universal then everyone has to have had them. And this is, in fact, what it's, you know, the United Nations Founding Charter of, of, of Rights says. But it's clearly not true. And so if you recognise that something like secularism or something like human rights is culturally contingent, bred of Christianity, 
then the risk is, is that you, you know, just as you stop believing in God, so you have to stop believing in human rights as well. And I think that that's something that people don't want to give up. And, 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 and really, the, you know, the, 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 the thinker who really channels that and focuses on that is Nietzsche. And Nietzsche's sense that, you know, so when, when Nietzsche has his famous uh, parable of the death of God, the man who comes into the, the marketplace in the morning with a lit lamp and, and says, you know, what are you doing? Don't you understand? We've killed God. Our, our daggers are wet with his blood. And Nietzsche says that, that actually the reason for that is that although the corpse, you know, God is dead, his corpse is so huge that it continues to cast shadows. And Nietzsche, when he wrote that, I think was not targeting believing Christians, confessional Christians. He was targeting the people who believed that they'd emancipated themselves from Christianity and yet hadn't. The liberals, the humanists, the socialists, the communists, people who who continued to hold deeply theological assumptions, yet wanted to think that these theological assumptions could be justified in terms of whatever, uh, you know, m Marxist economic number crunching, or um, the idea that, 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 that science reveals that the, um, you know, the cultural prejudices of, of, of an Oxford biologist somehow are amazingly embodied and encoded in the very fabric of biology. Um, and, and this is kind of clearly mad, I think. But, 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 <laughs> but um, people, you know, you don't want to really gaze too deeply into that abyss because, as Nietzsche says, if you do, the abyss starts to stare back at you. And I think we've got time for one more question, so please, uh, and, and then this is our last question. Please go ahead, sir. Please, sir. Hello, Tom. How are you doing? Um, Again, I, a quick direct question. Yeah, very, very, uh, very direct. I, I think Jane was right in speaking about the, the breadth of Christianity over the course of human history. I mean, it's an, an idea that's endured for a thousand years. Is there a point that you can identify, in your opinion, in history where Christianity was under its greatest threat as being the winner of that religious narrative over the Western mind and what made it endure and recover and thrive? Big question. Tom. Um, I, well, I, I, I think that um, uh, I, I, it's very, very unfashionable to, um, to look at the, the, the Battle of Tor as being in any way decisive. And, and in all kinds of ways, it isn't. It was just a, you know, this is the one won by Charles Martel. Um, it, in all kinds of ways, it wasn't. It was just a raid. It wasn't, you know... It, it possibly wasn't even believing Muslims going. It was kind of bands who were, who, who'd been kind of bought into the Muslim franchise and were marching on tour to try and sack and, and, and take loot. It wasn't a kind of war of religion. And yet I do think that if, um, if, if the Arabs, the Berbers, who, I, mean, I mean, we don't even know what to call them, really. I mean, they weren't Arabs, they weren't let's say for the sake of argument, the Arabs had done to um, the realm of the Franks what they'd done to the Vandal Kingdom in, in Spain. Then I think that um, Christianity would probably... It would never have attained its kind of hegemonic Western form. And the reason for that is not that Islam is an incredibly alien force. It's precisely that it's, it's kind of bred of the same marrow. But what 
the key thing that Islam embodies that, 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 that Christianity doesn't is that Islam inherits from um, Jewish scripture the idea that the law of God can actually be kind of read on a page. Whereas the Christian idea is that with the, 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 the new covenant of Christ, the law of God is written on the heart. So there is no equivalent in, um, in Christianity of, um, of the Talmud in Judaism or the Sunnah in Islam. And that idea that, that um, law is something that can be progressive, uh, something that can be written by human beings, um, seems to me pretty fundamental to the way that, that, that Christendom then evolves. And Western society evolves from Christendom. So I think that, 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 a, that a France that believed that the law of God was most manifestly expressed in the Sunnah, I think that, that, the, that the world would have been very different as a result of that. Um, as I say, it's an unfashionable position to take. But, Just, but, but I think probably that's the, yeah, the key yeah, Brendan's been gesticulating, say we're like one more question. Okay. So this really is the final so, question. Um, I, I'd just like to bring up the recent example we had about John Hen um, Henry Newman, the oh, founder yeah. of, of UCD. I want to make it quite clear, I have no personal connection with the university. He was founded UCD. He was an, an, um, an Anglican who converted to, to Catholicism. He came over to Dublin. My understanding is he had four rather lonely years trying to set up the university. Didn't get a whole lot of support from Dr. Paul Cullen. Now, the debate here was, would somebody from UCD go over to his canonization in Rome? And there was a huge reluctance to go. And I, it ties in with, um, I think somebody did go eventually, but does this tie in with what you had said earlier about that the position the popes had in the past is now the way the secular view is, the, is the dominant view, or did I interpret you correctly? Well, I think, I think, that, um, I, I, I think that there are two impulses within Christianity, and, and, and one is to look backwards, to assume that um, truth has been found. So truth is, tr tr truth is obviously embodied in, in, in the life of Christ. It's embodied in the New Testament. Uh, is it embodied in the teachings of the Church Fathers? Is it embodied in, um, in, in the canons of the Catholic Church? Uh, so there's always a debate about um, what the inheritance of authority is and how far back you, you, you have to go for authority. And in a sense, um, the, uh, what, what emerges, I mean, I'm sure you would agree that, that in a way it's anachronistic to talk about the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages. I mean, it's just right. the, the church. But, yeah. but what, it, let's say, what emerges is the Catholic Church in, out of the Counter-Reformation puts a premium on, on, on the, the, the inheritance of tradition. And it's kind of like pressing a, a, a break against what is another inherent aspect of Christianity, which is the idea that you look into your heart to know what is right. And in a sense, that's what Luther, that's the Lutheran 
revolution. But Luther, again, is kind of, you know, he's going back to Paul and, 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 and seeing it there. And the effect of that, if you look into your heart and you just do what is right, if the spirit illumines, illuminates you, if you, you're given enlightenment, one of the consequences of that over the course of time perhaps is that you... Do, do you ultimately even need Christianity? I mean, that's, that's what seems to happen in the 18th century. The, if, if the idea of looking into your heart and, uh, and, 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 and craving illumination and enlightenment becomes such that you don't even need it. And so I think that there's, there's, there's always this tension in Christianity between which do you emphasize. And by and large, the way that the split has happened in, in Christendom since the 16th century, Catholics have emphasized pressing the brake, going back, looking at, at, at the inheritance of authority. And Protestants have, have tended to emphasize the look into your heart and, whoa, we've all become atheists. Um, but of course, you know, it's, the, 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 there's an enormous amount of looking into the heart that Catholics do. And there's an enormous amount of looking back to, to authority that Protestants do as well. But I think that Newman wrestled with that tension in his life. And as a, as a Protestant, he was attracted to the, uh, the, 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 the call of authority in Catholicism. And I think that as a Catholic, he, he remained highly attuned to the kind of the appeal of, of the notion of kind of enlightenment and where it could go. And I think that, 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 that that's a tension that lies to this day, even among people who, who, who may not consider themselves um, uh, Christian. Do, do uh, do you know, but I, 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 we don't have, uh, we, we're going to have to stop though. Maybe you can talk to Tom afterwards. So what I'd like to do, I'm very conscious now that we're between you either at a glass of wine or your dinner, but it would be wrong of us not to thank you for coming uh, and for your terrific questions. I'm sorry we don't have time for more. I, above all, though, I think uh, we need to thank Tom Holland for his erudition, his wit, for this amazing book, which obviously I would encourage you to buy. I'm sure he's willing to sign it. It's very ambitious. It's wonderfully written. Um, and I think uh, uh, we'll all remember the evening we heard him at the Dublin Festival of History and hope, Tom, that we see you here again very soon. So thank you very, thank you. very much. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Dublin Festival of History, brought to you by Dublin City Council. You can find out more about the festival on dublinfestivalofhistory.ie and by following us on Twitter, where we're at HistFest.